Well, what a wonderful day we have had to worship the Lord together. It's great to be together in such a time as this and the difficulties of our world. And it's a privilege for us to be together on this evening as we study the Word of God. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles together with me and open them to Zechariah, the second to the last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah. We have been continuing as a church to study the minor prophets, and our study brings us tonight to Zechariah's prophecy to the nation of Israel. And I have to just say at the outset that it has been a rather daunting task to uh, go through this and this particular study of Zechariah, not the least of which because Zechariah is one of two minor prophets that has 14 chapters. Um, And that alone causes a great deal of stress to a person like me. Um, It's a book full of intrigue. It is a, a, a book that has both near and far implications for those who read it and heard it for the first time from the mouth of Zechariah himself, and it has both near and far implications for those who live in our time. So the text of Zechariah, 14 chapters, covers 211 total verses. Um, those 211 verses, you could divide them up, if you will, in, a, in an overall outline by, with, under two major sections, verses one to eight, or chapters 1 to 8, and then chapters 9 to 14 really make up those two major sections. And in all of those sections, these verses have a whole lot going on. There is a call to repentance from Zechariah. There is a section in which there are eight metaphoric uh, visions that he receives from the Lord. There is a, a question concerning spiritual duty. There are numerous references to the coming Messiah. And if all of that wasn't enough just to look at on your own, there are six chapters that deal with apocalyptic times of the millennial kingdom when Israel will be brought back to God. So just for us to cover that tonight, we'll be here for a while. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Some of you almost fell over. So there's much here for us, however, and we'll try to get our hands and our minds at least around some of it And just to do that is really rather staggering. And so really in no way do I plan to attempt to cover all of that in detail tonight. But but I do pray that you'll you'll take your own time. You'll take your own uh, time in your own study and return to Zechariah and really look at it for yourself and find all the the wonder that is really here in this, this wonderful book. Let me just start then tonight by giving us some background as we as we do often because we're we're not really familiar with all the minor prophets in our own minds. The prophet Zechariah was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. Uh, you'll notice as you turn back a couple pages to the book of Haggai, they were uh, in the same time frame as the King Darius, that's, that's who was ruling in the Persian kingdom when they were 
were ruling or when they were prophesying. It was around 520 B.C. that Zechariah was prophesying. And his ministry began about two months after Haggai's ministry began. And both of them were what we have come to understand to be post-exile prophets, post-exilic prophets. That simply just means that they prophesied or they preached or they brought their message to Israel after Israel had come back from exile or out of the captivity that they had been taken into in some other conquering nation. And the case here would have been after they came back out of captivity from Babylon. And so the nation of Israel had been under the Babylonian captivity for many years. Uh, You remember that in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was taken over by King Nebuchadnezzar, and the city was destroyed, and the Jews were taken into captivity back into Babylon. Well, after all of that time had passed, after they had been in Babylon for all of those decades, and all that time had passed, around 536 B.C., God allows the Persian king, King Cyrus, to free the captive Jews and allow them to return to their homeland. And you can read about that and see about that back in the book of Ezra. Ezra tells of that time when Cyrus decreed that the temple would be built and that he would have the temple built. And so he asked the Jews and brought the Jews back to their homeland in order to do that. Of course, God had placed it on his heart in order to have that happen. And history tells us that under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was the the Jewish civil leader at the time, that about 50,000 Jews returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And according to Ezra chapter 3 and chapter 4, they began to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed many, many years before by King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, as often happens as well with us when we are called to obedience, we talked a little bit about that in this whole idea of evangelism, right? Evangelism is is in fact a discipline of our life, but in fact it is a discipline that is really um, obedience to God, right? If we're not evangelizing, we're actually being disobedient because we're commanded to obey. And oftentimes, when we have that, sometimes when we're called to obedience, because of opposition or because of fear or because of other things, like the nation of Israel, the surrounding nations, their own desires for ease and for comfort, you notice back in Haggai chapter 1, it says in verse 2 through 5, thus says the Lord of hosts, the people say, or this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So God had dispatched them under the, the decree of, of Cyrus, and they went back, and yet the people are saying, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, it is time for you yourselves to dwell, or is it time for you to, do, to dwell in paneled houses while the house, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So the work on the temple had been 
in essence, abandoned. They had begun the work, the foundation was laid, and then because of the surrounding nations, because of their own desire for ease and the opposition that had come up against them, the indifference in their heart, because of all of that, the work in the temple had been abandoned. And for some 16 years, it had sat dormant with only the foundation that had been laid. So God raises up both Haggai and Zechariah to stir the people in order to rebuild the place of worship, the place where they would go and worship God and where God would dwell in their midst. And thereby, because God was dwelling in their midst, he would heal their land, which had been had so much trouble over the decades. God would be in the temple. They would have access to God and their land would be healed. Now, I don't know about you, but I can identify with the nation of Israel as a just in my own personal spiritual life at times. It can be difficult at times to accomplish what God has placed before me to do even this side of the cross, even this side of knowing that Christ has died for us. It becomes especially difficult if the world around us is bringing upon us opposition. This is what sometimes makes evangelism so difficult for us because we don't like opposition. In fact, when when we were talking about that earlier, my wife leaned over to me and she said, no one likes rejection. That's part of the reason, right? That's part of the reason why we don't evangelize. Opposition, rejection, things like that that take place in our, our own psyche. And we then sit back and we don't do what God asks. The flesh is weak. Our desire for ease, our desire for a way of escape begins to just subtly creep in. And so often in time, we just stop doing what we've been commanded by God or even asked to do. We become just like the Israelites. We become indifferent. We become complacent. We abandon, if you will, what we've been asked to do. And we become then very stagnant, even in our own Christian growth. And we become even distant from the things of God at times. And like Israel in Haggai Chapter 1 and verse 6, God said to them, You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, he earns wages to put in a purse that has holes. In other words, it's if everything you do doesn't seem to succeed. Everything you do doesn't seem to have enough. You're you're like the hamster on the wheel. You're always running and never getting anywhere. That's what we're like at times. We're like Israel. We sow, but we have no harvest. God's blessing, beloved, is directly connected with obedience. God's blessing is directly connected with obedience. So what is it that gets us back on track? What is it that gets us back doing what God has commanded us to do? What has it been in our own Christian life that gives us a jump start, if you will? It's those those jumper cables from the spiritual side that, that just pump back to us and put us back on track so that we walk in obedience to God. What is it that does that? Well, I believe very often it takes the loving, direct, 
and truthful encouragement from someone that God sends our way. Sometimes it's just the loving, direct, truthful encouragement from somebody that God puts in our path. And that is exactly what's taking place in the book of Zechariah. The people of Israel have become complacent. They have become stagnant in their task at hand, in their heart's desire to do what God had called them to do. They have settled for pleasing themselves and pleasing other men rather than pleasing God. So God sends Zechariah to truthfully and to lovingly and to directly give the nation of Israel some encouragement so that they might begin to follow the things of God. And so Zechariah was sent to be an encouraging motivation to the nation of Israel. So tonight I want to to just unfold for us three unforgettable truths that ought to motivate any of us to action for the things of God. Three, three, I call them unforgettable truths. You can call them anything you want from Zechariah. But these, these are just three truths, three motivating truths that will hopefully help us be obedient to the Lord God. Here's the first one. True repentance, true repentance always receives God's compassion. True repentance always receives God's compassion. In other words, if there is true repentance in the heart of man or in our own heart, God will always exercise compassion. Notice what Zechariah says in chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, now this is the second Persian king. Cyrus was years before. Now Darius is on the scene and had been member 16 years since the foundation had been laid. So Darius is now the king. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen. They did not give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did my, not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then, then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. We heard these words this morning as we were studying in Jude, I quoted from Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2. And I think these words are true here in this very same way. God says in Isaiah, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. 
Well, that certainly wasn't true of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had once again grown complacent to the things of God. The task had been given to them. They had been told under the previous prophets to rebuild the temple. And the task to complete the temple was a difficult task. They had come out of years of captivity Prior to that, their captivity, of course, was the necessary consequence of their own sin. This is why God says to them, why they say, then they repented as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us according to our ways. In other words, they were crying out to God because they were in captivity, because of their own sin. God had held them accountable for their hard-heartedness. They needed to be broken. They needed to be broken of their sin, and it took nearly 70 years to do that. They were in captivity for nearly 70 years, and now here they are, they have returned, but they are now back into their complacent, disobedient pattern of life. But God says if they would repent... If they would return to me, then I would return to them and shower blessing upon them. It wouldn't be like before. It wouldn't be like what I did before when God had for a time turned his back on them because of their sin. If they would acknowledge their sin, if they would return to God, then he would have compassion on them. What a place for Zechariah to begin. What a place for God to call Zechariah to say, right out of the gate, this is the first thing they need to hear. What is more encouraging? What is more encouraging to us when we're walking in disobedience, when we're not doing what God has commanded of us to do, doing what God has sent us to do, what is more encouraging than to know that if you will just humble yourself and be contrite before God concerning your own disobedience, that He will be with you. What an encouragement that is. I cannot think of anything more encouraging, more motivating for me as a Christian, than to know that even in the depths of my own sin, if I would just truly repent and turn away from my sin, God would have compassion on me. God will not turn His back on me. That is really what causes us to repent. You understand that, right? Paul said in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This is what causes us to repent. It's knowing that we deserve the judgment of God, and yet God is a patient, loving, kind God, and so... We repent. That causes us, that brings us to the place of, in, of repentance. How encouraging it would have been for the Jew who knew the history of his own country, who knew the history of the people who had gone before, they knew of the captivity, and he knew it was a result of their own sin. 
And yet he is part of the returning exiles. Maybe he was a child when they, when they left, and now he's an old man, and he comes back, and how encouraging it would have been as an exile returning, and yet the work on the, the temple has stopped. Every person from the leadership down to the youngest was no longer doing the work. How encouraging would it have been for them to know that if they just truly turned to God, God would turn to them. God would restore them. It wouldn't result in God turning his back on them, but rather it would result in restoration and blessing. I was reading some time ago about a pastor in the 1800s. His uh, last name was Moore. His first initials were T.V. Moore. And I thought about saying that. I thought, well, people are going to think that's TV, like television more. It's not television more. Those were his initials, TV more. And he put it, he, he said this about this. If men expect God to return to them in prosperity, they must return to him in penitence. And then he made this statement, the flower that turns away from the sun must turn toward it if it is to catch the rays of its smile. So true, isn't it? It's so true. How encouraging it is to know that if we will just turn to God in repentance, if we would just do what God has called Israel to do here, the Old Testament is here for our example. Zechariah is telling us about what the nation of Israel must do. And yet it's an example to us. We would just turn to God in repentance. He will indeed turn to us with compassion and help. So that's encouraging truth number one. True repentance always receives God's compassion. The second encouraging truth is this. Though the task may be difficult, though what they need to go through might be hard, God is the one who provides enduring strength. God is the one who provides in stirring strength. Now, Zerubbabel was, of course, the civil leader for the Jews. And he was in charge then of this task of building the temple. It was a huge task. The opposition was very heavy from the surrounding nations who were still hostile to Israel. The people had grown complacent to that task. And so now three months after the first prophecy of Zechariah, God gives Zechariah eight visions in one night. Eight visions in one night. Notice verse 7 of chapter 1. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the first prophecy was in the eighth month on the second year of Darius. Now it's the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berkiah, the son of Edu, as follows. So this is, this is now the second command he's been given by God to tell Israel. They're still sitting complacent. And from verse 7, of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 6, there are eight seemingly confusing visions. And we don't have time to go through all of those eight visions tonight, so I want to just list them for us and give the significance and then focus on chapter 4 and verse 6 because that really is where we need to hone in because that's 
showing us that God provides the strength. So when we look at chapter 1, and you go from verse 7 to verse 17, this is the first vision. And in that vision, you find men and, and horses and myrtle trees and all this language that is going on, and it's seemingly confusing, but I just want to let you know kind of what's going on there. It's showing the divine mercy of God for Israel, that the Lord will again be merciful to Jerusalem. That's the idea. That the Lord will once again be merciful to Israel. And then when you follow that in chapter 1, and you go from verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21, there's four horns and there's four craftsmen, and you get these other views of what is happening. And those, God is saying, those who have scattered Judah will be dealt with. In other words, there is divine care happening from God. There's divine mercy in the first vision, and now divine care from God as you see Him dealing with them in this metaphorical vision. And then, of course, the third one is this whole vision of the measuring line, this plumb line, beginning in chapter 2 and going from chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 5. This whole measuring line, in other words, divine protection. God was, was measuring it out and going to give divine protection, and God will protect Jerusalem regardless of the size. And then in chapter 3, verses 4 to 9, we get the fourth, and that is the divine cleansing that God was going to bring through Joshua, the divine cleansing of Joshua. In other words, Israel's sin will be cleansed. Not that Joshua was there, but it was this symbolic idea that that Israel's sin was going to be cleansed. And then, of course, you get to the fifth one, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, but that is this golden lampstand and the olive trees and what's happening with all of that. And we'll get to that in a moment, just to kind of highlight that, that is divine provision by God, as we will see. And then sixth, you have in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, you have the flying scroll that has things written on the front and on the back, and the angel talks about that, and this is the divine standard. In other words, dishonesty is being cursed. Dishonesty is being cursed. And then number seven, you have chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, you have this woman in the basket in which there is divine judgment happening. Wickedness is being removed. And then, of course, the last one in chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, where you have four chariots and then the whole earth is being judged. The whole earth is being judged. And so you have this sweeping time frame from Israel being dealt with in Jerusalem all the way through into the future when they would be in the millennial kingdom and the divine judgment that's seen in those four chariots where the whole earth is judged. Now all of that is coming at us tonight very fast, right? Because we, we just don't have time to even cover it all or even go through it all. But let me see if I can boil it down to us in just a few words. Take all of those and just boil it down to just a few words so that we kind of get a grip on all that's going on. And it's this, God is fulfilling His covenant promise to care for and save His people. That's the idea. 
God is fulfilling his divine promise, his covenant promise to care for and save his people Israel. This is why it's so important for us to <coughs> understand and believe in at least in our doctrinal theology that the nation of Israel does have a history. Not just a history in the past, but a history that's going to be in the future. They they have a future. And so God is going to fulfill His covenant promise to care for and save His people Israel. That, that's the idea that's going forth in those eight metaphorical visions. In other words, all of those visions, all of those things that Zechariah is seeing are motivators that God, for the people to know that God has not forgotten His promise to them. God has not forgotten His promise and Sandwiched right in the middle of all of these visions are the wonderful words to Zerubbabel that even though the task at hand may be overwhelming, even though it might be daunting to finish the task, difficult, in fact, nearly impossible to finish, Zerubbabel needed to understand that it would never be accomplished by human might. It will never be accomplished by human wealth or stamina to complete the work. Only the abundant supply of the power of the Holy Spirit would enable him and the nation to carry out the task and empower Israel to do the work and to be what God had commanded them and made them to be, which was to be the light of the world. So notice what it says in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So the whole vision of chapter 4, with its bowls and lampstands and olive trees, is a picture of God's continuous supply of His Spirit for empowerment. It's just this picture that God is the continuous flow. It's, it's almost a reminder to us of John 15 that, that we are the branches. He's the vine. And with the continual flow, we can accomplish what God has set out for us to accomplish. I love that. I love that. You, you mean in the ministry? You mean in my own Christian life? You mean in my daily walk? I don't have to go it alone? I don't have to do it all. Nope. No, you don't. God is the one who supplies. In fact, listen to the words of Zechariah's contemporary. Listen to Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Listen to what he says. To Haggai, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? 
Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. I love that. I love that. If the Old Testament is an example to us, that ought to be an example to us, particularly in the day and age in which we live. It ought to be a motivation and an encouragement to us, this side of the cross, to experientially know that because of Christ, the Spirit of God is always with us. He's always with us and He's always empowering us. Haggai says to Zerubbabel, don't fear. God said, don't fear. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fret. We don't need to complain. We don't need to give up. Why? Because our God is in, not just in our midst, our God is in us personally. He is in us. If you have trusted Christ, He is in you. Reminds me of Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? We, we touched on it just for a moment this morning, but I think it's profitable for us. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Why? Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We don't just have God living in our midst. We have God living in us. Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when you doubt, take that thought captive to obedience to Christ. When you have apprehension to do something, take that thought captive in obedience to Christ. When you have frustration and fear, take those thoughts and those those 
those hindrances and take them captive to obedience to Christ. When you're tempted to just give up, take that thought. Take it captive to the obedience of Christ and destroy the thought raised up against God. Continue to trust Him. Continue to do what He says. Because it's not by might nor by power. It's by His Spirit that we will accomplish anything. So encouragement number one is just that. It's true repentance always brings compassion. Encouragement number two is God through the Spirit provides enduring strength. Encouragement number three is this. One day, one day sin will be totally removed. One day sin will be totally removed. When you think about the people in Zechariah's day living in pre-cross times, before Christ came, before the cross, sin and its guilt could only be covered for a time. And it could only be covered for a time through the sacrifice of some kind of animal. And for us, in post-cross days, the guilt of sin can and is dealt with through faith in Christ. But for Every generation, pre-cross or post-cross, the effects of sin still remain, don't they? Pre-cross, they had the effects of sin that they still had to battle. Post-cross, we still have the effects of sin that we still have to battle. But there is coming a day. There is coming a day when all of that will be gone. And beloved, we need to remind ourselves of that all the time. There is coming a day when I won't have to battle this foolishness anymore. I won't have to battle my own flesh. The power of sin and the guilt of sin will be ultimately and finally removed. Notice what Zechariah says in chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. And also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury. For all of these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Do not love lying. That's what he means by that. Do not love lying. That is the whole point of the book. God is going to save Israel and God is going to make Israel a blessing to others. And those promises that God makes to Israel are intended to fill the Jews with hope. They're intended to motivate them. They're intended to get them off their complacency to be fearless and strong in the task. And the most important of all the promises 
is the one that one day sin and all its effects will be totally removed. There will be no more need for sacrifice. If we were to just sit and read from chapter 8 all the way to the end of the book, you would notice that in chapter 13, it says this. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. God is is saying to Israel, God is promising through Zechariah to the people of Israel that at some future time, a fountain would be opened up which would take away their sin and their guilt. Would remove it. And this fountain, beloved, for all, is, is, is the same fountain for all the other promises that God gives. Why? Because the only way, the only way sinners can hope to inherit the riches of God is if their sins are forgiven. There is no inheritance in Christ without having our sins forgiven. Someone once said it this way, the fountain of cleansing is the first stop on the road to heaven. Fountain of cleansing is the first stop on the road to heaven. I like that. Think of what that might have meant to a discerning and thinking Jew. It meant that all the provision for cleaning up their sin according to the old sacrificial system was completely inadequate. All that they had practiced for all of the years and all of the animal sacrifices was completely inadequate to deal with their sin in any kind of way. And that's exactly the point of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2 through 4, isn't it? This is what it says. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, right? He's talking about the Old Testament worshipers. Having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. In other words, if blood of bulls and goats, if the sacrifices they had dealt with would have taken away sins, they wouldn't have had to do it anymore. But in those sacrifices, he says in verse 3 of Hebrews 10, there is a reminder of sins year by year because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why were the animal sacrifices inadequate? Why, if the animal died, would it not take away sins? Why would it only cover them for a time? Dr. John Piper put it this way, quote, because the loss suffered by an animal doesn't compare to the injury which our sin brings upon the glory of God. He's right. The essential evil, the essential evil of our sin is not is not the the destruction that it brings upon human life sin is an evil because sin destroys lives on a human realm sin is evil because it of what it does to the glory of god it brings upon the glory of god shame causes others to blaspheme god If we would begin to grasp the horrendousness of 
evil that is upon the glory of God simply because human beings distrust and disobey the God who has made them. If we would just begin to grasp that horrific reality that that our sin brings upon the very glory of God, a a view of God that is lower than anything that God was ever going to be thought of. If we thought of it like that, we would never stumble over the doctrine of hell. We would never have a problem with the doctrine of hell. We wouldn't be surprised that the only sacrifice that could atone for our own wickedness was the sacrifice of the only Son of God. You see, our disobedience to an infinitely worthy God is an infinitely blameworthy disobedience. And it deserves eternal damnation. That's what it deserves. This is what Israel deserves. No no finite animal, no finite human being could make amends for our sin. Only an infinite humiliation of an infinite God. The God-man Jesus Christ, only that could restore the vast injury that our sin has caused and brought to the glory of God. John Piper said once again, quote, the fountain that had to be opened was not the neck of an animal. The fountain that had to be opened was the pierced side of a son of God. How encouraging those words must have been to a Jew. Zechariah couldn't see the whole story, but God showed him at least this much of the story. If anybody is going to be saved from sin, a new fountain needed to be opened. A new fountain was going to be opened. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, it says. How encouraging those words ought to be to us. How encouraging they ought to be to us because true repentance always receives God's compassion. One day, sin will be totally removed. We don't have to fear. If we have repented, we know Jesus Christ and God provides enduring strength through His Spirit. I skipped over it earlier, but in chapter 2 and verse 10... Zechariah says, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. When we hear those words as Christians, when we hear those words this side of the cross as Gentile believers, it ought to bring to our minds what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrews was trying to say, look, that's a reminder of Christ. 
that in him by faith we are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We are no longer, as it says in Ephesians 2, aliens and strangers. We're no longer that. No, if we will repent, God will forgive. He will supply sufficient strength to obey. And one day, sin will be totally eradicated. The hope and joy and encouragement of Zechariah is not just for the Jews, it's for us. It's our hope, it's our joy, it's our encouragement. And so too, if we will return to God, He will return to us. In those times when when you're ready to quit in those times when you're challenged and you say, I, I just, I'm fearful. I, I don't want to do it. I'm intimidated. God's grace is sufficient. Our endurance in those moments will not be by our might. It will not be by our power. It will be by the spirit that God has given in us. And joy of all joys, there will come a day when the battle will be finally over. And we will be with Christ. No more sin. No more sin whatsoever. Go to chapter 14. I just want to finish with this. Let these words just be on us. The final moment when Jesus Christ comes to earth, the millennial kingdom begins. In that day, verse 4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Jesus Christ will return, and he will rule in Jerusalem, and when he comes down, he will be coming down on the Mount of Olives, and that mountain will split in half. And Zechariah says to them, and you will flee to the you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. You know who the holy ones are? You know who that is? That's us. That's us because we're a church age. We're, we're, we're gone before the tribulation. We're, we're coming back now with Christ. That's us. The holy ones are with him and it will come about in that day that there will be no light and, no lum- and the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, you think? A day which is known to the Lord. There will be neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening there will be light. And it will come about in that day, the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be summer as well as in winter. And verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, I love this, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. I love that. You want to talk about an exclamation point? There it is. He will be the only one. 
Zechariah says, Israel, you can, you can get busy doing the work. Don't worry about the people around you. Don't worry about what's going on. Don't worry about all that. Don't fret about it. Just get busy doing the work. God is with you. You don't need to fear. And one day, he's going to come back. And he's going to rule from that place. That should encourage each one of us. Should it not? Well, let's pray together. Father, it's been fast. It's been maybe even furious. I'm not sure. But it has certainly been good to hear your word. So much here that we could dwell upon. So much that we just flew over. And I pray that we would return to in our own time, that we would be challenged in our own thinking to understand and to grasp and to draw from and to be encouraged by what you have told your people. And the encouragement that it is for them, the encouragement that it is for us. As you have told us, your word in the Old Testament is an example to us that we should follow. Lord, help us follow that with diligence. Thank you for your people here tonight, willing to hear these things, willing to to be challenged by them, willing to think about their own lives, how we serve you. Lord, in these days, may we not fear. Let us be courageous. May your spirit move mightily in us that we would stand strong, regardless of the opposition, that you might be glorified in it all, And that we long and hasten the day when you will return and we will be with you. We thank you for these things. Bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.